Welcome to another episode in this podcast series on The Man Behind the Letters. My name is Paul Manis, and this is a study in the Apostle Paul. What we're studying is his relationships, the relationships he had with many people whose names we find in the New Testament, both in the letters he wrote and in the book of Acts. These are the people with whom he spent time as he visited in the various towns during his missionary journeys. We hope to uncover and learn about Paul's interactions with these people, how he engaged with them, felt about them, and what he taught them about Jesus in relational terms. Our focus continues to be on the human dimension of St. Paul's life rather than the traditional doctrinal focus. We're learning about what we call the man behind the letters. So let's continue. This is part one on the conversion of St. Paul. We left off our last discussion, drawing a connection between the zealousness of St. Paul uh, in terms of his historic faith, his relationship to the Judaism as he knew it, and how passionate he was for the God of the covenant. And it's that same zeal that Paul begins to express as he comes down on the early Christians because he does not believe that they are following the true faith as he understood it. And so we come to take a look at the conversion experience of Paul, what sometimes is called the road to Damascus experience. So for all of Saul's passion and zeal, his adherence to Israel's traditions and Yahweh's covenant with Israel, Saul's ways and God's ways were different. God had other plans for him than to be a defender of Israel. God wanted Saul to become a lover, not a fighter. Though, though Saul thought he could see clearly when he was going towards Damascus, he could not see actually whom he was to follow. The zealous blindness, you might say, that engulfed him also blinded him to the nature of the God that he actually worshipped. There were things about God that had not been exposed to St. Paul yet. His blindness was a prelude, you might say, to the light that was to follow. It seems so often that that's the way illumination works. Those who say they can see are blind and those who confess that they are blind, see. Saul, the one who believed that he saw so clearly en route to Damascus to root out the Jewish heretics, found himself actually abruptly confronted on the way to Damascus by the crucified Jew, Jesus. To be appropriately graphic, God stopped Saul's potential killing spree of the early followers of Jesus. And we'll have to talk a bit more about that. What we'll want to do is to blend together some of the statements that Paul makes as he gets ready to go to Damascus, as he justifies his experience of persecuting the early Christians, and some of the background material about why he thought that was the right thing to do, and then to talk about his actual conversion experience, or some people would call his transformation. So what we see is that 
his conversation with Jesus on the road as he was moving to Damascus to persecute the Christians is sufficient somehow to convince Saul, and later, writing to the Galatians, he says that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Saul became convinced that he was actually speaking with the man who was crucified, dead, and buried. Saul asked, Who are you? As he falls from his horse and his eyes are are shut off and he cannot see because of the blinding light. And the voice responds, and those accompanying Paul apparently heard the voice without seeing who was speaking. The voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul puts up no argument. What must that have been like for him to hear? There appears to be no discussion or challenge to the revelation. Like Moses in his approach to the burning bush, there comes a point where the ground becomes holy and there is only one response appropriate. You have to take off your shoes. There's no stepping back, no stepping to the right or to the left. You are on holy ground, if even on your back. The presence of the Lord is a consuming fire that surrounds you. And Saul, blinded by the light, had no recourse but to listen and allow himself to be led by the hand once the vision was over as he finished the Damascus journey. The strong man was made weak. For Saul to have gone from such passion and zealous indignation to, within a month's time, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God is a miraculous conversion and fundamentally a turning point for the Christian church. There are many texts in Paul's letters which make it clear that he had encountered the Messiah of Israel. As we mentioned last time, we know nothing concretely of Saul and Jesus' encounter during the Lord's ministry. Though we also suggest that a meeting is not entirely impossible. As a student of Gamaliel, Saul would have indeed been a student for several years before what occurs in Acts chapter 7 and 8, which begins the persecution of the early church. If an early date for Saul's conversion is accepted, though it's not required, then the last week of Jesus' life would have been a time that Saul might have witnessed some things. Such an event would explain the intensity of his initial persecution of the followers of Jesus. So if we date the conversion of Saul, say around 37 AD, that would be following F.F. Bruce in his timeline, or maybe earlier, 31 to 34 AD, which would be following Murphy O'Connor, Saul certainly would have been in and around Jerusalem during that period of time. As we mentioned, Paul does comment, though we once knew even Christ from a human point of view, we know him that way no longer. He says that in 1 Corinthians 5.16. Even though he said that, we're not sure, does that point to an engagement with the physical life, the period when Jesus was walking and teaching? In the Damascus Road Epiphany, Jesus calls himself Jesus as opposed to Messiah, 
that is, Christ. His name is associated by all indications with his childhood and adult life in and around Galilee and Jerusalem. So he doesn't introduce himself to Paul in a messianic form, but in a living and breathing form as he communicated with his disciples around the city of Jerusalem. Karl Barth comments that Paul, after his conversion, knows Jesus not merely objectively, as he may have before, but subjectively. And, and one must remember that when Bart uses the language of subjectivity, it's not a reference to a relative term that is one person's subjectivity over against another's, which is a form of relativism, but a true subjectivity, an experience of the other as subject. So in that meeting, Saul meets the one in whom we live and move and have our being, as he says in Acts 17, 28. There's little question that Paul saw himself in continuity with others who had the same encounter with Jesus. His greetings at the beginning of the book of Galatians is explicitly stated to defend his apostolic calling and to make an assertion of the truth of his having met the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following, Paul lists the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. He appeared to Peter, the apostles, and then more than 500 brethren, and then to James and the other apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, Paul says. Earlier in that same letter, he asks, have I not seen Jesus Christ the Lord? Additionally, the whole gist of Galatians 1 is that Paul's understanding of the gospel is a result of somehow, if not even literally, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Later in his writings, the relationship between Saul's meeting Jesus and Paul's apostolic authority, we'll have to deal with that because that's pretty interesting. They are keenly related. And in Saul's conversion, as he campaigns against the followers of the way, as the early church was called, he's stopped dead in his tracks, as I mentioned, by Jesus, who is to now Paul the way, the truth, and the life. Other Christian commentators have seen a relationship between Saul's conversion in Acts 9 and a, the parable of Jesus in Matthew 25. Uh, you'll recall that Matthew recounts Jesus telling this parable of the kingdom. And in that parable, the king says that treatment of his servants is treatment of him. The connection between the king and his own is of such a nature that the actions towards the brothers of mine in the parable are actions towards the king. You cannot treat a king's servants without your actions being the actions towards the king. So there's a symbiotic relationship, we might say, between the king and the servants of the king. Hence in Acts, Jesus asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is, in Saul's ravaging of the Christians, Saul is actually ravaging Jesus. 
and Jesus takes this personally. Later in Ephesians, Paul will make the analogy between a married couple and Christ and the church. A husband should love his wife in a sacrificial way as Jesus himself loved and died for his bride, the church. The most intimate of creation's relationships is held up as the essence of the relationship between the Messiah and the new community of faith. So as Saul had seen the stoning of Stephen, Jesus had felt the impact of those stones upon himself. As Stephen saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, so Jesus took Stephen's prostrated position at the feet of Saul. The church doctrine of the substitutionary and vicarious atonement has no better biblical text than this for support. And it is about the relationship between Jesus and his people. So the question, why do you persecute me, is asked with the full measure of suffering asked by an innocent man who stands in the place of his servants. What, Saul, have I, Jesus, done to you for which you persecute me? In fact, Saul, whatever you are doing to these you persecute, you are doing it to me. Saul's response poses an interesting question. The profound impact of the blinding light through which he can see the radiance of the Lord is enough for him to know the question should be respectfully asked, Who are you, Lord? The answer to the question is simple, yet humbling, though powerful in its implications. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We don't have here the self-pronouncement of an angry ruler or deity. We do have Jesus naming himself as one being pursued and violated. He does not say, I am the Lord your God. He does not say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He does not say, I am the word through which all things exist, who was incarnate among you, full of grace and truth. He does not need to say more than what he says, for in his name, Jesus, he is who he is. His name means something. He's not found in his titles or references of grandeur. He is known in the nature of his response. He saves people who are persecuted. Jesus means Savior. So he is who he is and will be, Jesus. We have Moses' imagery standing behind all of this before the whirlwind of God who is known in a still small voice. As Paul will recount later, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not hold on to his being as God. Rather, he humbled or emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. Even in Jesus addressing Saul on the road to Damascus, with all that Saul has been doing, Jesus speaks of himself in emptying terms. 
as Bart has shown us, even his being in the form of a servant is no less than his being the God of the universe. The being of God is made known to us in the acts of God and in Jesus emptying himself and taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a persecuted one. We find in that revelation the very nature, very character of God. He is to us the humble one, even in his majesty. In his actions as a servant, the incarnate one is still no less, even all the more, the one he is. As Jesus, he is Lord. And as Lord, he is known by his name, Jesus. He who gives himself is acting in the service of delivering his people. So the connection to his people is the force of the statement. The personalness of God's connection to his people is here so intimate. As Stephen is stoned to death, the man Jesus, who bore our afflictions, suffers the weight of the stones upon himself. The relationship between Christ and his people begins here in this event, and Paul begins to understand it. Remember where he asks in the book of 1 Corinthians, is Christ divided? It's a question of the fundamental unity of God's people taken up in the unified person of Christ and his body, and who is his body? the church. Saul's conversion has profound theological implications for his way of viewing the Old Testament and this Jesus whom he's been persecuting. It's in Jesus' peace with Saul, in his forgiveness of Saul, in his grace toward Saul, that Saul begins to understand his relationships with others. Jesus loves Saul, even in Saul's anger towards Jesus. And Paul will write later, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Under the broader religious discussion of conversion and the degree to which a person is slowly converted or maybe immediately converted, it raises for us the questions which may have been going through Saul's own head during this process. While it's fair to identify Saul's conversion as fundamentally immediate, it's nevertheless worth addressing the impact that it had on him over whatever time period it took him for, took for him to get what he got. Would he have expected others, based on his own conversion, to have the same immediate awareness of the divinity of Christ as it was displayed in the Old Testament history and the promises of the covenant? What we can assume is that Paul, with his Pharisaic background, would have struggled at some level to integrate the reality of Jesus into his existing understanding of the Old Testament. Certainly, seeing Jesus alive after being crucified, might Saul have witnessed that event? But that by itself would be mind-blowing. How could this be, 
unlike the Sadducees, you know, the Pharisees were not believers in a resurrection of the body. How does one defend the reality of a dead man walking and talking? Saul's meeting with Ananias in Damascus, who was a devout man according to the law, Luke records for us in Acts 22. In Damascus, he was there to greet Paul. And his having been a man of the law would have been to some extent reassuring and assuaging to the struggles that Saul was experiencing. We don't know anything about Ananias' conversion, but he also came from a Jewish background and had met the risen Lord. He too had heard the voice of Jesus, who was now alive. And he too was obedient to the call to serve. Saul can be assured that in his newfound experience of encountering Jesus, he's not alone. He can be assured that as a devout Jew, he's not alone in seeing Jesus as the promised Messiah. In his book, Conversion in the New Testament, Paul and the Twelve, Richard Peace suggests that the recitation of the conversion experience in 2 Corinthians 15 is really a model of the nature of conversion for all of us as a specific set of events there in the New Testament that we should take a look at. Paul's experience covers three stages, Peace suggests. One is a vision or awareness of the presence of Jesus. Two, it's a turning from the current wrong direction in life. And three, it's a turning towards the person of Jesus for a new direction and a new map, if you will, in life. All of this for Paul becomes, or rather is consistent with, the calling under which he was placed. We, we know this because there are some accounts in the New Testament that give us some various perspectives on this. In his conversation with King Agrippa, Paul says that Jesus' commission was to him to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. The nature of conversion itself as a fundamental reorientation of human experience is what Paul has encountered and is in essential ways sharing that that can happen for others too. Paul's statement to Agrippa is an account of what had happened when Paul shared the gospel to Gentiles. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's what has happened. Peace, the author, does recognize that not all conversions are as dramatic as that of St. Paul's, though to be a follower of Jesus, the threefold events will be present. So it's in this sense that the preaching of the resurrection becomes a hallmark of the presentation of the gospel because it's Jesus after the resurrection that we experience. It's in proclaiming that Jesus is alive after his passion that the work of the Holy Spirit is realized. And it's through the preaching of the resurrection that the fragrance of the gospel is experienced as grace or death. For Saul, 
the epiphany of the risen Lord, the, the turning from vengeance and hatred of the way and turning in obedience towards a life of faith in the Messiah, that's Paul's experience of the grace that follows. So other, the other side of this conversion coin, if you will, is the guilt which Paul may have felt for his time of persecuting various believers in their homes, and we'll talk more about that. We, we know he used the language of the least or the last about himself, that he was the chief among sinners. To, he uses that to reference his own role among the apostles. He sees himself as a lesser apostle, if you will. He sees himself as one untimely born, and even in his righteous Pharisaic position, as being as a filthy rag in terms of sin. What level of forgiveness he may have felt is really a question of his owning within himself what he proclaimed to others. In Christ becomes then the new reality for his life. He now has experienced a new position in relationship to his own past and his position before God. Paul's intelligence and his passion for the service to God continues after his conversion. So must we believe does his understanding of the nature of the covenant and the function of the temple sacrifice. He now experiences them different in relationship to Jesus, but his depth of understanding and awareness of the covenant function is the same. Jesus death for us was efficacious for those to whom Paul would preach grace. And it must have been for him too, as his eyes were opened, not only by the hands of Ananias, but by the insight into the mystery of grace brought to his waywardness by Jesus. What must that have been like as an event for Saul? What was it like meeting Jesus face to face? So here the psychological profilers have spent some time. Words found in the, in the narrative that Paul uses have been used to find subtle implications of the mindset and the emotional stability or instability of Saul as he journeyed along. The verse, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, Acts 24, I'm sorry, Acts 26, 14, is open for some discussion. What does he mean by that? You can do a purely lexical, exegetical study of it, if, if that's really possible, and find that the verse is not terribly helpful without an understanding of the function and the goal of a word like goad. In, in common parlance, we would call this a prodding stick or a poker. It's a stick-like object you know, made either of wood or of metal that is used to poke an animal in the buttocks or the side to keep it moving forward. It, it must be used with care to not wound the animal by piercing the skin, but just enough pressure to convince the critter to move onwards. Some have found this whole saying to be a kind of a proverb of sorts or a Greek colloquialism. Apparently it's a sufficiently colorful saying in communities where animals are herded along that Jesus would use this imagery to suggest that Saul is being a bit recalcitrant 
and is in need of prodding is almost, almost amusing. For Saul, I'm not sure the feeling was so funny. It's not easy to delve behind this language into Paul's mind, either theologically or emotionally. We have to kind of feel it ourselves. His own autobiographical remarks never indicate a weakness of judgment or an uncertainty about the surety of his zeal for the house of David. Saul never seems to critique his own zealousness. He can even boast later, as Paul, that according to the law, he was blameless. In fact, in the Philippians text, Philippians 3.6, he protests that even in the flesh, he was confident about his standing before God. Saul's upbringing, his education, his personal discipline created for him a sure foundation and defense upon which to stand. But, but no matter, whatever the Saul's personal character, however vindicated in life he felt, the goading of God got him moving in another direction. Against his entire defense of a former righteousness, he proclaims in response to the goad, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, Philippians 3.8. Even in his confession that God prodded him, Paul is not concerned about his own personality. His vulnerability is found in his obedient response to the calling of Christ. 